Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda. Uh, we have a three-way call going with myself. Uh, Danny Sherson and Danny Abdeljabar. Uh, for those of you who don't know Danny Sherson, he is a retired uh, U.S. Army major, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and is also a historian and writer. Uh, you can find his work on publications such as uh, The Nation and Antiwar.com and, and many more. Um, there will all be in the description below. Uh, but Danny's great. He's incredibly smart. He brings really great context. Uh, we're talking Israel and Palestine and uh, the deal of the century. And um, I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this episode. It turned out really well. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. If you really enjoy it, though, make sure that you rate and review the podcast if you're on Apple. And uh, we also have a Patreon as well. So you can find us at Patreon at Bro History if you want more content. But why don't we just get right into it? All right, so welcome to another show, Bro History. Uh, on today's show, we got a special guest. Uh, we have Danny Sherson, who is uh, now, I guess, retired major in the U.S. Army. Uh, Danny is a former history instructor at West Point, and he's also a combat veteran of both wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, you can find his work on The Nation and Tom's Dispatch, among many other publications. Uh, Danny, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me back on again. I've... Uh really enjoyed it last time and uh, I've enjoyed the time we've spent together in person and uh, just looking forward to another great conversation. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're really, we're really looking forward to having you on and, uh, you know, Danny Abdeljabar, I probably shouldn't say your name in the context of this conversation, Danny, for new, for new listeners. To, you almost forgot to mention that I was on the phone too. Yeah, I forgot <laughs> to mention, but um, Danny and I, you know, we both had the privilege and the pleasure of seeing you actually debate uh, this topic in person at the Soho Forum a couple months ago. And I forget the exact, um, what the exact like debate question was. It was in, in order for Israel to, uh, for there to be peace, Israel must defeat the Palestinian movement, something like that, which you, which you won. Um, hands down. Hands, hands down. Like objectively, the crowd chose you. Yeah. So, you know, Danny and I, we were like, who should we get to speak about this, this issue, especially when it's a controversial issue? It's been called the third rail of politics many times. So we were like, I, you know, Danny Sherson is probably the best person to get on and he'll come with a very nuanced view and he'll be um, objective as possible. So uh, thanks for thanks for agreeing to be here. You know, I'm glad to do it, especially on this topic. You know, I think I've told you guys before in the past that. I was warned when I first came into public life, you know, in a minor capacity, like when my first editor um, and then a few after actually warned me, like, n- whatever you write about, like, and I write about provocative stuff, but they were like, do not write about Israel-Palestine, period. Like, it's not worth it. It will only cause you trouble. 
you know, you're, you're going to lose readers. You're going to alienate people. Don't do it. So, of course, me being me, you know, a dissenting soldier who was essentially an atheist in the monastery for the last, you know, 10 years of his career, I was like, well, now that you said that, I'm going to write even more about Israel-Palestine. And, and not, not just to be provocative, but quite frankly, because, you know, you guys know this pretty well. You know, overseas... Whether you're in Iraq or Afghanistan or any other, you know, uh, Islamic sort of state or Islamic influence state, you know, what you regularly hear is, look, part of the reason we hate America is because of your biased policy towards Israel. And so to me, it's like I would be doing a disservice to other veterans and, and, and to American policy abroad if I didn't jump all over this topic. So I'm glad to do it. And we're glad to have you for it. Uh, we wanted to talk about, the, I guess, the quote unquote deal of the century. Um, I also ask you flat out, like, what's your initial take on this? You know, I could have quite frankly ignored the entire topic because, and I didn't. I mean, I read about it. I mean, I've followed uh, uh, Jared Nepotism Kushner and the whole <laughs> deal. But um, I could have predicted that this was going to be stillborn, right, from from the start because the Trump administration even worse than other, I mean, every American administration since Harry Truman has been wildly biased in favor of Israel. There's a few exceptions to that. George H.W. Bush parried in a more moderate direction at a time or two, et cetera. But for the most part, every executive has been wildly pro-Israel, right? I mean, Truman started it all off, right? And people don't know this history. You know, we're, the, we're, we're basically, we, we recognize the Israeli state when it declares independence, you know, we, do, we, we recognize it within hours, right? And Truman literally says to, like, aides that, you know, well, uh, there's lots of Jewish American voters, but there's, like, not a whole lot of Palestinian American voters. So, like, I'm going to do the political thing, right? And we've essentially followed that ever since, right? But the Trump administration has been more wildly and, – and, and the thing is, honestly, like, the thing I appreciate about Trump is, like, yeah, he's a monster, but he's totally honest, at least about some things, right? So the thing about Trump is he doesn't even try to be balanced. And so the whole idea of like a deal of the century, first of all, how many deals has Trump actually like negotiated that have been effective? This whole like art of the deal persona has not been, you know, backed up by actual output over the last two years. So I, I distrusted it from the start. We'll get into why later, I'm sure. But the bottom line is, this has been the most one-sided pro-Israeli to, to the, not only to the you know, detriment of Palestinians, but arguably to the destruction of any last hope for a two-state solution or any sort of independent sovereign Palestine. So, I mean, look, we're through the looking glass, Alice. I mean, this is serious. And of course, I never took seriously that America could be uh, a fair arbiter. But with Trump at the helm, with Kushner, with no with no background in this except his own biases with him as the point man i mean this is look not only is it not going to work not only is it one-sided it's it's farcical i mean it's some mark shit right history repeats itself the first time is tragedy the second time is farce we're in the farce zone right now right and it's, and it's interesting that you bring up that you know the u.s has been wildly pro-israel for the better half of the last century and in this century as well you know, I, I've been reading up, reading up on pa Israel, Palestine, and I've been going back into, you know, post-World War One, And it's interesting because, you know, I saw that there was a commission that went there. It was called the King, uh, King Crane Commission. And 
the results were, this isn't going to work. Like this is going to alienate the Palestinians. This is going to end up being a disaster. And then the commission ended up being suppressed uh, by the British and the French. And it's kind of funny that sentiment definitely changed throughout the years. But I, I definitely agree. It's really hard to look at the Trump administration, especially with Jared Kushner negotiating this. And, you know, let's be honest, he has super close ties to Benjamin Netanyahu as far as I, I think Netanyahu's even slept at his bed or slept at his house and he stayed in his bed. Danny, you heard that, right? Yeah, they were sleeping in the same bunk bed, right? <laughs> Uh, wait, well, you, you you mentioned Benjamin Netanyahu. Do you mean the assistant president of the United States? Because that's what I've been calling him recently. <laughs> assistant president? You might, you, you might be able to call Trump the assistant president. <laughs> that's a fair, that's a, that's a fair, fair point. <laughs> well, so I was, I was hoping Danny that, that, uh, you know, for folks that um, might not be super privy to it, that we can get like a, TLDR or like a quick version, even though this is like an impossible ask of like, how did we get here uh, with this, with this issue with the um, Israeli Palestinian issue? Because as you mentioned, you know, it is uh, kind of the third rail. And so a lot of people don't really know how it is that we got here. All they know is that, you know, there's two opposing factions and, you know, as Americans, we're supposed to be on the Israeli side. So what context can you give us for like how we got to the point where now we're about to talk about this deal of the century? I'm going to try to do something that's never been effectively done, and I'm going to fail at it, but you guys will get to be the recipients of it. And that okay. is, I plan to give you a 90 to 120 second history that brings us up to date on Israel-Palestine, awesome. which is arguably the most complicated issue in the world, right? Or the most intractable issue in the world. A big surprise is that the United States, even though Truman was like pretty pro-Israel because of his political factioning and, and understanding that there was a lot more Jews in the Democratic Party than there were Palestinians, Actually, until the 1967 or at least the 1973 war, okay, because there were several wars between Israel and its, and its Arab neighbors, the United States was a little bit more of a fair arbiter. I mean, in the beginning, the United States was relatively lukewarm to uh, Israeli militarism. And even though the United States certainly wouldn't have probably allowed Israel to be overrun by the Arab states, it was not the primary backer of Israel. In fact, uh, early in the War of Independence, we're talking 48 to 49 now, uh, it was Czechoslovakian weapons, right, out of, the, out of the Warsaw Pact, or what was to become the Warsaw Pact, that, that really were the first influx of weapons that supported Israel. But over time, Israel-Palestine got wrapped up in the Cold War duality, right, the Manichaeism, the binary dichotomy of the Cold War vision, which of course was utterly flawed. And so since the the Soviets were backing uh, Egypt and, and Syria in particular and, and Iraq to some extent, you know, Israel became an ally. And we called them the only democracy in the Middle East, which was like flawed from the start because Israel's apartheid-like system and occupation of Palestinians and, and disenfranchisement of their own Palestinian citizens, citizens of Israel, that is, who, who make up about 20% of the country, uh, made them not really a true democracy. And I would argue they're not even a true democracy today. But uh, we said they were the only democracy in the Middle East, and we backed them largely to, to you know, check the Soviets. And so that kind of helps explain why we went to a nuclear war footing in 1973 with the Soviets um, when the uh, Egyptian and Syrian forces had initial success. Look, after that, 
it no longer was a purely Cold War problem, but it was a problem of lobbying and money. And this is where I'm going to get myself in trouble. And this is where Ilan Omar, right, famously got herself in trouble recently when she said it's all about the Benjamins. Look, APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, that might not be correct, but it's a lobbying group in favor of Israel. It's extraordinarily powerful. It's got a lot of congressmen, a lot of senators in their pocket. Um, the There is no similar lobbying organization with any comparable power in uh, on K Street, right, in Washington, D.C. And Congress and, and executive after executive, president after president, have been in the pocket of Israel uh, to such an extent that the United States is, quote, you know, honest broker, which is what we've, de- you know, described ourselves as in several administrations, has really been a farce. And look, here's the bottom line. Since the 1990s, when the peace settlement at Oslo fell apart, and we could discuss why that is, but I'm not going to get into it now. The United States has stood aside while Israel broke basic international law basic um, commitments that the rest of the world agreed with, basic commitments based on the Nuremberg principles that aggressive war is not a way to gain land, and they've become a settler colonial state. What I mean by that is not only have they not given sovereignty to the Palestinian territories in Gaza and the West Bank, but they've begun to settle land, especially in the West Bank, with Israeli Jewish-only settlements. So now you have a military occupation combined with a settler community, and the United States has done nothing. I think there's two major reasons for this, or three. One, it's the money from AIPAC, but that's not all of it. Two, it's the fact that, you know what? When the United States sees Israel being a settler colonial society, we're not as upset about that as other people, because you know why? Just like the Australians, we too were a settler colonial society. Israel's policy t- towards the Palestinians, they're pushing them into like reservations, is very similar to the way the American empire grew continental in the United States. We too were a settler colonial empire, and our victims weren't Palestinians. They were the various indigenous peoples who nearly went extinct by 1900. And, and the third reason, and this is the crazy part, and I'm like way over my 90-second goal, which is totally always going to be the case when we talk about this. The final crazy part is that evangelical Christians who are a major, major force in American politics are wildly pro-Israel because upwards of 50% of them to this day in 2019, right, when we have science, they really, really, really believe that the end of the world is coming. And in order for the end of the world to come, according to their view of Revelations, the last book of the New Testament, Israel has to like form a state uh, in the Holy Land. Now, Of course, what they don't tell you is that once Jesus returns in their fantasy, all those Jews in Israel who don't convert are going to hell. But in the short term, they make common cause and they want us to give weapons and support to Israel because they read revelations in such a way that they believe Israel has to come back to the Holy Land in order for the world to end. And these people are crazy, so they're really looking forward to the world ending. Now, the world will end in their grandparents, in their grandchildren's, you know, lives, but it'll be climate change, not the reckoning that does it anyway that's where we're at and uh i'll be ready whenever you are to explain <laughs> sort of what trump has done to only inflame this further <laughs> well, i was i was hoping that you were going to say that thanos was going to come by and snap us all away um but all of those options sound pretty reasonable uh <laughs> in the context um so all right that was that was pretty awesome um in terms of like a a quick overview of 
like how did we get here? And I guess, you know, um, one thing that I did want to ask about, because I know that you had something interesting to say about this is, is, you know, kind of how the rest of the world seems to be, uh, um, not allying with Palestinian, uh, uh, the PLO, but uh, at least sympathizing with them under reason, in reasonable ways. And I know that one of those big um, uh, allying forces was the PLO and the IRA in, 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 um, in Ireland. I was wondering if maybe you can talk a little bit about that uh, and make some comparisons and, and contrasts. Okay, yeah, three things, right? There's always got to be a magical three things. The first thing is that the UN General Assembly, which essentially has no power, it's symbolic, mm-hmm. right? In the end, the United Nations is a dictatorship of five major imperial powers, right? Mm-hmm. Britain and France, who are like waning empires, Russia and China, which are larger you know, uh, Eurasian empires. And then of course the United States, right? Uh, the general assembly, they, they vote all kinds of stuff, but it doesn't become law because the United States, Russia or China tends to veto it. The rest of the world. And I mean the vast, vast filibuster proof majority, right? To use an American term Mm -hmm. of the world is essentially pro-Palestinian, or at least leans in the direction of Palestine deserving a state, right? And Israel ending its military occupation. Um, UN Resolution 242 says that not only, uh, and this is this this is law, right? This is international law. Says that uh, not only does Israel has to, uh, you know, give back the West Bank and Gaza, but it has to allow a two-state solution, and it's not allowed to colonize territory because international law, for a long time now, since the Second World War, since the Nuremberg Principles were put in place, uh, taking places over and then colonizing it with your own citizens is is illegal in every single case. The only reason 242 is not actually followed, is not actually followed through, is because the United States vetoes any attempt by the rest of the world, especially by the General Assembly of small, non-imperial nations, to, um, to force any change. Okay, so that, that's the first thing. The only reason Israel can do what it does is because of Uncle Sam. The top cover, the money and the weapons, but more importantly, the diplomatic top cover, right? More importantly, the, the diplomatic top cover that the United States provides is the only reason Israel gets to act like a spoiled child on the playground, right? Israel does not have to follow the rules that everyone else does. Israel does, look, here's one example. Why are we about to go to war with Iran? Well, because John Bolton is a monster. That's the short, <laughs> that's, that's the simple reason. But the real, the broader reason is because we think they want a nuclear weapon and God forbid Iran gets one. Now, I'm not a big fan of nuclear weapons at all. I mean, there's a sticker on my book that says, like, abolish nuclear weapons, right? Because I'm a hippie. But I certainly do want a little consistency. And, uh, you know, Iran doesn't have a, a weapon yet. You know who has a few hundred secretly but not so secretly? Israel. We say shit about that, though. Right? So the no inconsistencies, the inconsistencies are crazy. Do you know that Israel's actual policy, and this is fucking real policy, and I'm not supposed to curse on this podcast. Hey, but curse all you they, like. They, curse they, all you they, want. They're, which is great, because that's, that's how I communicate New York style. But anyway, the, <laughs> their policy is to neither confirm nor deny whether they have nuclear weapons. But everyone knows they have nuclear weapons. And the United right. States, I've seen the declassified documents that Kissinger threw around in, in, in the early 70s during the Nixon administration when, when Israel was first forming their arsenal. Like, we've known for 50 years that Israel had nuclear weapons. We never, we never say a peep. So, okay, so, that, so that's my point. Without American top cover, Israel could never get away with this bullshit, like especially the settlements. Second, the IRA was uh, a subject of my first master's thesis. I wrote two because I'm a masochist. 
And I've always been interested in the IRA because I'm from uh, partly from an Irish American family in Staten Island. Um, my uh, grandmother, who'd never once been to Ireland, uh, taught me when I was about eight that the IRA were freedom fighters and that the British were our historical enemies, right? So uh, this was a fascinating concept for me my whole life. I no longer believe that to be true, at least not completely, but it, it broached the subject and it, it piqued my interest. So I've been studying it for many, many years in depth, and I've come to have a much more nuanced view of that war. But the bottom line is that the Irish Republican Army, which wanted a united Ireland and an end to British um, occupation of Northern Ireland, had an extraordinarily close relationship with two major international organizations. The first one was someone that no one has ever heard of, right, unless you're a dork like me, and that's the ETA, which is a Basque separatist group in Spain, right? They had a really close relationship. They shared weapons. The IRA sent them a bunch of pistols at one point. But they had a much more important, at least ideological, connection to the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the quasi-secular uh, conglomeration of of uh, mostly left-leaning Palestinian independence groups who were uh, fronted by Yasser Arafat for many years. The IRA has murals in Belfast. You can Google this. I mean, please do, listeners, um, where it'll be like an Irish tricolor flag and a, and a Palestinian flag side by side with like a masked Irish gunman and a masked like Palestinian gunman like side by side saying like with like words like brotherhood or the struggle is real, you know, the struggle is, is, is linked. And so what you had was these disenfranchised nationalist groups worldwide who made common cause. I mean, you know, from the viewpoint of the IRA, their purported occupation by the British, well, it was an occupation by the British, right? Their view of Ireland being occupied by the British to them was common cause with Palestinians being occupied by Israel. So while the Americans are providing top cover, these other nationalists, especially left-leaning organizations during the entire Cold War are making common cause with the PLO, right? So, so that's the second point. And the third point is that even domestic groups, right, in the United States that saw themselves as disenfranchised, which, of course, given America's original sin of slavery and racism, we have to talk about African Americans, particularly in the urban ghettos of the Cold War, right? Especially the late Cold War, 80s, 90s. I'm a huge Wu-Tang fan. I'm from Staten Island. That's like Ain't the nothing proudest. to fuck with, right? <laughs> yeah, nothing to fuck with. Then and now, Wu-Tang is forever. I'm going to see him in Wichita, July 31st, because that's how I roll. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be like in Wichita, Kansas, but it'll probably probably still be raw. Look, um, Wu-Tang Clan, as well as um, other groups like Slain, uh, who's a rapper from Boston, um, and, and others that, that – and I think even Nas makes reference to Hamas uh, regularly because they saw themselves as an occupied people themselves. And they are, right? They were and they are because the increasingly militarized American police in the age of stop and frisk, in the age of broken windows policing, treated the neighborhoods that were, that were black and poor or people of color and poor like occupied territory, right? We all know this. It continues to this day. So I counted once, and there's upwards of 20 Wu-Tang songs, including four or five that were radio hits, where they refer to the PLO. They say that they're the PLO of the ghetto, or they refer to their rhyming as PLO style. Google it. It's a thing. I, um, I have heard that. I, I, I didn't I, make that I, connection. Yeah. Yeah. PLO <laughs> style. They'll say, right. And like, to me, that's incredibly interesting because whereas the U.S. government, right, the corporate white Christian dominated U.S. government has long just demolished any concept or, or any future of Palestinian freedom or Palestinian rights, the, the more indigenous and the, and the more um, 
you know, uh, disenfranchised elements, even within the United States, have long made common cause with the Palestinians. What does this all mean, right? I think what it means is that globally, America is out of step, or at least the American government is out of step. When you're the only country that believes something and 180 or 190 other countries are against you, it's possible that you're right. But statistically, mathematically, probably you're doing something wrong, right? When everyone else who has nothing else in common with each other is against you, including some elements of your own population. I think, it, I think it's instructive. It's not, just, it's not just a piece of trivia, although it is an interesting you know, piece of just like trivia talk, but it's, I think it's, it's, it's really instructive. And yeah, so the bottom line is we're way out of step with the rest of the world. We always were, and we're getting even more out of step now that Trump is going further than any American president has ever dared. I think an issue is, though, is that most Americans will never call Israel or at least Israel's occupation of Palestinian lands. Uh, they will never call that apartheid. Um, I mean, what's your take on that? Like, is that an apartheid state like South Africa? Israel is an apartheid state. Um, by saying that, I'm going to decrease my book sales because mainstream Democrats and, and you know, most of the um, Jewish political lobby, or at least the pro-Israel, because there's a lot of Jews who are actually against this. But, um, you know, the, the Israeli political lobby will, will, of course, be upset. Look, I've studied South Africa a lot. Um, the the similarities between the Bantu stands, which were essentially were Indian reservations for South black South Africans, right? And the um, occupied Palestinian territories, which are really a series of like fiefdoms separated by Israeli military role, uh, roads and, mm -hmm. you know, and by settlements of Jews. I mean, they look remarkably the same. Uh, they have two main things in common. One is a total lack of civil rights meaning that uh, black South Africans had no uh, ability to vote at the polls or at least for have any power at the polls. And of course, Palestinians don't get, get to vote for the prime minister who leads the military occupation of their lands, right? They have no right to vote. Um, so that's the first similarity, of course. And the second one is, is gross poverty combined with just, you know, militarist oppression within their own communities, right? So like, we're talking about massive impoverishment. We're talking about, uh, income inequality at a level that even the United States, which is the worst in the world, can't, can't even compare to, right? So those are the two things they have in common. So to, to not say that Israel is an apartheid state is, is ludicrous. Look, even Jimmy Carter, who, you know, gets a bad rap as like some sort of wild liberal, but like if you read my American history series or any serious historian with credentials, Jimmy Carter was a moderate Democrat. In one, in one sense, he was actually a transition between the liberal Democrats and the more mainstream Democrats of Clinton. But, you know, as early as like 2004, and I, and I might be off on that by a year or two, you know, Carter wrote a best-selling book called, you know, you know, Israel, Peace, Not Apartheid. And he got, of course, lambasted for it. But I'm saying, look, even major mainstream political figures on the American center left have admitted this. But very few are willing to do so who are currently in office. I mean, what Carter has going for him is his political career is over, right? He has nothing left to lose, so he can be honest, you know, but like Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, you know, fuck, Joe Biden, whoever else is left from the, you know, Joe, you know, the, the I voted for Iraq mainstream militarist wing of the Democratic Party, they're all blatantly pro-Israel. And so is like Amy Klobuchar, right, and some other people who are in this race right now. Uh, the, the, the madness of 20 Democrats, you know, running. So 
it is an apartheid state. Um, I think it's extreme. You know, words matter, right? I used to say this to my students when I would give them Fs at West Point. But like, words matter. Like, what you say matters. And 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 I am of the opinion that. It's actually, no matter how controversial it is, no matter how provocative it is, if the evidence points to Israel being an apartheid state, and it does objectively, we have to use that term. Because unless we do, the chances of the U.S. government, or as more importantly, the U.S. people, forcing their government to turn against at least the policy of Israel. And let me just throw a disclaimer. None of this means Israel shouldn't exist. That's why I'm a moderate on the world scene. You know, in America, I'm a radical in this country. You know, I'm a communist in my economic policies because I'm like moderately pro-labor. And I'm, you know, um, I'm a radical because I think that Palestine should have a state. But the truth is that on the world scene, which is a more balanced, objective scene, I'm, I'm a moderate. I, I actually do think there's a special reason for the Israeli state to exist. Uh, I think it's problematic that it does. I think it was problematic from the start, but I do think that some sort of compromise is necessary because the historical disenfranchisement and destruction of the Jewish people, I think, is a special case, right? So that puts me squarely in the moderate camp worldwide, but far left or radical in America. But, you know, it's important to do this. And let's, let's just do one other quick history lesson and, and verbose history professor Danny's really coming out here, but I'll keep it short. Let us not forget, the United States was one of the last countries to turn on apartheid South Africa. White-dominated, terroristic, I mean brutal regime of white South Africa. Until the late 1980s, the United States didn't turn against it. Why? Well, one reason is because Ronald Reagan was a bigot, and he really liked the white guys running South Africa. But the main reason, which is why he tried to veto congressional attempts to sanction South Africa, but the main reason is because of the Cold War. Like, white South Africans, like, they may be brutal, but at least they were anti-communist. But those nasty black freedom fighters in the nationalist South African organizations, they used words like socialism, and they had taints like leftist, right? So, in other words, the American government for year after year and decade after decade backed South Africa. So, not only is it important to call Israel an apartheid state, it's important to remember that even if we did label it an apartheid state, America has a nasty history of allying itself with those very apartheid states. With that, I'm going to drop the mic for a moment and take a breath. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Yeah, uh, that, that's a lot of interesting context. Uh, I think that, that that link between you know, um, South Africa and, and, and Israel is, is pretty clear. And I think one of the points that you brought up that, that seems the clearest to me is the way that the occupations are being handled. And I do want to talk about the deal uh, of the century. But before we do that, I think it's kind of impossible to talk about this deal without talking about the makeup of the of the current occupation right now. Uh, because, you know, none of the, the actual details of the deal have been, um, you know, released yet. But, you know, through some leaks, we kind of start hearing a little bit about, you know, a semi-autonomous mini-state called New Palestine maybe popping up in this deal uh, that would be comprised of like areas A and B uh, of the West Bank. Um, and uh, maybe the capital would be somewhere in like the expanded boundaries of like Jerusalem. Um, but, uh, you know, on the face of it, that sounds like, Hey, that's, that's not so bad. They get there. There's your two state solution. But, um, without like looking at a map or without knowing the context behind this, I think it's really like not as good as it sounds. Um, so I was hoping Danny, could you try and like with words explain how Palestine is being occupied and the differences between the A, the B and the C areas, and kind of like that Swiss cheese effect that's going on. Just shed some light on exactly what it looks like. Yeah, the, the Swiss cheese term is one that I was going to use. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, you you asked that I give a rundown of the most complicated situation in the world today <laughs> in words. And, and, and that's great because if I was on video, I would probably attempt like an interpretive dance because I feel like <laughs> – that would be like a more artistic and less scientific way to get my point across. No, the, the, the bottom line is, okay, you got areas A, B, and C, and I'm not going to do a lot of detail about them, but these are Israeli terms for Palestinian land, right? These are Israeli decisions and strictures that affect Palestinian life. Um, certain areas of Palestine are actual Israeli settlements, and they're no-go zones, and the roads between them are no-go zones. They're either military roads or they're settler-only roads, right? So they're apartheid roads, and that constitutes one of those letters. Um, then there's also the areas that have a slight degree of Palestinian autonomy, and then there's the areas that have much more degree of Palestinian autonomy. But the A, Bs, and Cs are so mixed up that not only is Palestine no longer contiguous between Gaza, which is on the southwest of Israel and on the Mediterranean coast, and the West Bank, much larger, which is along the Jordan River and then all the way out to East Jerusalem, not only are those two parts of the Palestinian state or nascent Palestinian state or future Palestinian state not connected, but within the West Bank, because of the settlements, because of the military roads, because of the different you know, A, B, C designations, which, by the way, are completely arbitrary. I mean, these are Israeli imposed, and I've said that already, but there is really imposed strictures. I mean, this is some Kafka-esque shit, right? Um, and, and to a Palestinian, so I could tell you all day what this means in terms of international law, what it looks like on a map. Here's what it means for a Palestinian. I think I'll end with this. For a Palestinian, it means that Israel has potentially um, de facto annexed some of their ancestral land, even some of their farmland for an individual. They have built a separation barrier, uh, an illegal wall that actually wall. build a wall. 
it yeah <laughs> walls are really popular again i love i love this right-wing populist surge like from brexit to trump to hungary like the world sucks like brazil like i mean anyway that's a whole set we should do that next time but the i mean so now we have walls running through palestinian territory like what international law calls palestinian territory so like some people are actually separated from their olive trees and their fields right and then you also have the reality of uh, Israeli drones and, and, and planes in the sky violating what should be Palestinian sovereign airspace, um, the reality of soldiers at checkpoints. Uh, if, if I want to travel from Jenin to Jericho to Ramallah, right, we're talking like north to south, right? I don't know if that order is correct, but it could take me, and this is not a big country, right? This is not a big country. It could potentially take me you know, seven hours to travel like 30 miles because I got to go through Israeli checkpoints. Then I got to stop and I'm only allowed on these roads. Then I get stopped at another checkpoint. You know, then there's a wall. So I got to make a, a, a long detour. Look, the reality is uh, the, what you said is correct. Israel has turned what was already a fractured Palestinian state, right? And, and an illegally and immorally fractured Palestinian entity. They've turned it into Swiss cheese. And so look, Google, a map of, of Palestine today, and if you find the right ones, it'll, it'll show you that rather than a contiguous state from the Jordan River to East Jerusalem, which should be their capital, what it really looks like is, you know, almost like an ink blot, like psychiatrist test, but worse than that, it's, 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 it's like, it's pixels, right? It's, it's these little cantons that are sometimes like one mile by one mile or even less separated by military roads, Israeli soldiers and Israeli settlers. And, you know, Palestinians aren't even allowed to go near uh, Jewish settlements because the reality is there are two types of citizens. Palestinians are second-class citizens. Fuck, Palestinians are 12th-class citizens and Israelis are A-grade citizens. I mean, the, 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 the distinction between Israeli life in the settlements, which are illegal, and Palestinian life in their villages, which are their right, the difference between them is a chasm greater than we could possibly bridge. Yeah, def I definitely think that's really good context because, you know, when, when I was first reading about this many years ago, you know, looking at, you know, the difference between Israel-Palestine and the map, I was like, oh, well, that's a little weird that Gaza's off to the left, you know, and West Bank is on the other side. How could they possibly have a state? You know, they can't move in between the two. And that's legitimately like a big portion of, of the issue of creating a two-state solution, just the fact that they're so completely separate from one another. But the more you read about it and the more you look into it, it's worse than just the distance and the and the you know the split between Gaza and West Bank. It's like West Bank itself is being like Swiss cheesed. I don't know how better to say that. That that it's oh, such yeah. it, let me add to that real quick. Mm -hmm. I should have said this. This is all purposeful Israeli policy. Netanyahu, who has gone so far as to say he's thinking of actually just outright annexing illegally, like officially annexing parts of the West Bank. But like Netanyahu and the Likud party and even the center left and the center right of Israeli politics, they're purposely trying to fracture and, and swish cheese away mm -hmm. Palestine because what they're trying to do is create facts on the ground where a Palestinian state in the future is no longer viable. And they have had remarkable success in doing that because, dude, right. we're three smart guys, and we could we can get ten smarter guys and go on a commission together, and we would have a lot of trouble putting Humpty Dumpty back together again because the mm -hmm. Israelis have created facts on the ground that make a Palestinian sovereign entity almost right. impossible. And that's if we decided tomorrow to do the right thing, and we haven't right. even gotten close to that. 
Right. Yeah. And, and it, it certainly does look very intentional, you know, even, even without reading any documents or like seeing any proof, just looking at the way that it's constructed just seems like, why would you, why would you do that? Why would you put a settlement smack dab in the middle of the West Bank and then carve out this whole corridor in the middle of it just so that you can get there? You know, I always assumed, you know, when I was more naive, when I was not hip to this uh, particular issue that, that the settlements were on the border, right? That, the settlements were just, they were encroaching on the border and pushing farther and farther into the border. And it was just that simple. And, you know, the, the idea in my mind was, oh, well, you know, stop pushing forward. But in fact, it's much, much crazier. And what that, what that does, at least for the Palestinian people, is that obviously they lose, you know, acres and acres of their own land, right? Miles and miles of their land. And you pointed out a couple of situations where like, you could be an olive farmer, right? And then half of your olive grove is just gone now because you can't access it because they put a road in between it and you can't access that road, right? So it, they're either illegally settling on that land, which we've already pointed out that this is under international humanitarian law, you can't do this, or they're illegally exploiting those natural resources, right? By straight up taking them, right? Hey, here's a real fertile area of the West Bank. We're going to, we're going to put a real nice, you know, settlement on here and we're going to set up shop and we're going to do yeah, and and, and, let, and uh, one quick thing. Water. Mm-hmm. Water is Water. a major mm-hmm. resource in the Middle East, and the sure. Israelis have been very careful over the course of 50 years to monopolize the best water resources and starve the Palestinians or dehydrate the Palestinians. Correct. You know, and, and so those, those severe restrictions on how Palestinians can use their own resources, you know, themselves itself is very, very problematic. So when you try and think about, like, even the creation of this new Palestine, if such a thing could be possible, right? Uh, but they got the best people on it, I'm sure. It just, it doesn't seem to address the biggest issue. And the biggest issue is that literally the people of that, of, of New Palestine wouldn't be able to move around anyway, you know? They're, there's, I, they're the most, they're the most stateless, disenfranchised people. One of the most stateless and disenfranchised people on the planet. And, um, you know, people like my father, um, who is like, like the poster boy for like, um, white male resentment right <laughs> like middle-aged white male resentment but he's but he's a really important guy i mean i mean he's a really important person because he's like smarter than your average bear which is so hard for me to admit for a man who voted for trump but he is but he represents that like 40 percent of americans who are like in the conservative camp and like hit one of his things and, and everyone like him things is like yeah but the palestinians are suicide bombers but like and i'm gonna say something here that's gonna really make people think i'm a radical I think suicide bombing, especially of civilians, is like one of the most abhorrent tactics ever. Um, but you understand why people strap bombs to themselves when they're placed in such a Kafka-esque, impossible scenario of a repression. You understand it. I mean, it doesn't mean it's right. It just means there is a reason these people strap bombs to their chest. And by the way, a tiny, tiny, tiny percent of them do that. Most of them are just as upset about it as the Israelis. But... Right. Look, this is why it happens. We've created a situation where they are stateless forever what and impoverished forever. What recourse do they have? They don't get arms shipments from America with F-16s like the Israelis do. Or fuck, F, what are we at? F-80? 35. Like, yeah, 35. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Like, as the world is, like, going underwater from climate change, I'm sure we'll be at, like, F-55. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I get that. It, it's It's... Uh, again, to underscore the fact that like suicide bombing is never a never a good thing ever. Period. Like full stop. The, the issue the, though, the is context they, is there. 
I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, but the issue is, is that they conflate everything with radical Islam. Everything is just radical Islam. Like they can't be trusted because they're mm -hmm. all fanatic religious zealots who will blow you up. And that's why the colonization is, is necessary because it's due, it's for national security because these people are insane. Yeah, that's and the that, argument that I well, Look, the language they use, like, like Israeli officials, I'm talking like primaries in the Israeli cabinet have used terms like termites, right? Um, insects, you know, infestation for Palestinians. They've it's gone a lot like in say, Rwanda. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. This is this is how you get a genocide. Like, this, and and I mean, what's going on is a slow moving genocide, quite frankly, or maybe not. I don't want to say genocide. It's a slow moving ethnic cleansing, right? I think that's more appropriate, more moderate. Sure. And uh, and and, and uh, factual. But look, another thing that's going on here is like we would be remiss if we didn't mention that these protests, these very, 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 very peaceful protests at the Gaza border wall or the Gaza border fence that have been going on for two years now in which 400 plus Palestinians have been killed, about a quarter of whom were children, about a tenth of whom were journalists and or uh, medical aid workers for the Red Crescent. Um, look, only like three or four Israelis have been killed. And those of us who are in the military know about the concept of proportionality, don't we? And when the casualty rates are that disproportionate, it actually becomes problematic up to and including the fact that it might be considered a war crime. But right. major Israeli ministers, I think it was the deputy foreign minister who's a female, was on like CNN, like not even on Fox, right? They weren't even on like fascist radio. They were on like CNN or MSNBC, which is like neoliberal fascist media. But anyway, and, and, and this woman said like, well, they asked her, like one of the American announcers like had the balls finally and to say like, wait, you just said they're all terrorists, like they're all Hamas, like all these people that are peacefully protesting that keep getting killed by Israeli soldiers. And the lady, like the foreign minister lady, the deputy foreign minister was like, yeah. And so the an American showed a little bit of courage and said, even the children? And she says, yes, the children are all Hamas. Especially the I mean, children. That, that, that's the language of like infestation and termites yeah. that, that, that leads to ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Netanyahu, he was, he was blaming the Palestinians on the Holocaust not so long ago. He was like Hitler didn't want to blame the Jews. Uh, he didn't want to. He didn't want to burn the Jews at first. He. It was the Palestinians that told him that to do it. The words. These are words that came out of Netanyahu's mouth. Oh yeah, I mean Netanyahu is so far right that he he does what all far right figures do in their societies, which is what they do is with with populism and revanchism and racism, they. Um, they actually they, they grab the entire political spectrum, right? And they forcibly just move the whole thing right. In other words, when you have a Trump or when you have a Netanyahu, people like us start to seem like fringe liberals because in comparison to Trump, we are. So Trump and Netanyahu and Bolsonaro and Brazil, right? These folks and now fucking Boris asshole Nelson. johnson yeah, in goddamn london like, yeah. <laughs> like these like yeah i mean first of all doesn't his haircut preclude him from being a national figure i, I know right I you guess, think they would have learned i guess not we, we've seen trump's hair so apparently his... you ever you ever noticed that why oh, is yeah. it that right-wing populist monsters like leaving aside their policies of like mass murder and repression they do have one other thing in common really bad haircuts and facial hair someone needs to write yeah. a book about it there's something there i promise you anyway i'm being facetious. <laughs> but the, the bottom line with all of this is b 
Bibi Netanyahu talks in ways that even within Israel would have been unacceptable as recently as 20 or 30 years ago. But the political spectrum has been uprooted and moved so far right by the Likudniks and the, particularly the, um, the ultra-Orthodox uh, in Israel that now Bibi Netanyahu is uh, considered like a center-right candidate or a center-right political figure in his country when in reality he's off the charts. And we're seeing the same thing happen in America, of course. I mean, what do you make of it? <laughs> like, what do you what do you do about it? You know? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I I have a lot of radical thoughts about Opinions. that. But, <laughs> I mean, um, I don't trust either major political party in America, and I don't trust either major, either major political party or the three or four major political parties in Israel. They've shown themselves to be. Um, closer together on most foreign policy issues than they are divided. They've shown themselves to be utterly corporate, utterly militaristic. Um, and so I'm an opinion. I'm of the belief that like the civil rights movement, um, grassroots action of civil disobedience up to and including shutting the system down may be our only hope. Because if you think even if you think the let's look, I'm sure we all have some favorite Democrats right now. We've probably all got a few favorites in the primary that we think are going to save the world. And I have my favorites too, but I do not believe that even the best of them can transcend the democratic national committee, the money in American politics, the money in Israeli politics to, to really take the radical change that we need. And arguably it may take shutting down the, monetary system the transportation system etc and so there i go being a hippie yeah. but i think that's hopefully, true hopefully we don't have to get there and hopefully we can through civil discourse uh get to the points that we need to make and on that topic of money I, yeah i'd like to turn back a little bit to this deal because a big portion of this you know deal of this century is money right so as i understand it the the aid package that they're proposing is somewhere between 30 and 40 billion dollars over five years um, and, uh, by the way, a bulk of it is going to be provided by Gulf states. So like other Arab states, uh, with small contributions from the United States, uh, EU and others. Um, so I find this pretty interesting, uh, because I read something on the world bank that I'd like to throw at you and see just you know, what your opinion is on here. But apparently the world bank estimated in 2013 that, uh, actions and restrictions that the Israeli government have taken in that area C uh, of the West Bank. And that's the area that's like under exclusive uh, Israeli uh, security control uh, that they estimate that that cost the Palestinian economy $3.4 billion per year. So back of the envelope math here, if you were to lift those restrictions, then over 10 years, you'd get the same economic benefit that this plan would uh, give the Palestinians without actually investing a single cent in it. Um, and it would be indefinite, indefinite right? Okay, so, so, it, so Israel, gets th Israel gets $3 billion of direct military aid with no strings attached every year, right? So that means over the course of 10 years, they get 30, right, at least. And that doesn't include some of their private sales of American weapons, right? It doesn't include the um, military aid they right. get from American allies. Right. The thought that there is like a pure economic solution to this problem, <laughs> the thought that like Trumpian capitalism, which is really crony capitalism, can somehow create enough affluence to moderate the Palestinian people. I mean, I, the way I read it is this, like this is Trump and his ilk 
of hyper capitalists, right? Saying, well, we can bribe the Palestinians to accept their shitty situation. This is their Stormy Daniels hush money. It really, but it is, <laughs> right? It's funny and it's fucking funny and it's tragic, but it's true. The guy thinks that way. I mean, Trump is a street con. He's a three-card Monty player, okay? He doesn't even understand economics outside of, like, payoffs to the mafia for casinos. I mean, this is how he thinks. And it's, it's refreshing in a way that he's so honest about it. Because the old Republicans would, like, lie and be like, no, it's trickle-down, it's supply-side, there's a science to it. Trump's like, fuck it, I just, I, just, I just pay bitches not to tell them I raped them. You know what I mean? Like, so, like, it's, oh, it's, it's like, that's, I'm sorry. But, like, that's <laughs> how he thinks. And the point is, he's a con man. Uh, the reality is this. This is a political solution that has to involve a military withdrawal. It has to involve a reinfusion of civil rights for the Palestinians. It has to involve a massive change in the Israeli occupation up to and including the removal of almost all the settlements, except maybe some of them that are right on the border that can be transferred for requisite Israeli land. The, there, is, there is no way to buy Palestinian ascension to this. It, 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 they, they, will, they will never assent to it. Um, my prediction is a third intifada, actually. A third mm. massive uprising of the Palestinian people once the final plan is put out by Trump. That sounds scary. Um, again, I'm a pretty big pacifist and hope that it doesn't have to come to that. That's, um, that sucks. Um, I'm hoping you're wrong. Let's just put it that way. It, it's funny, though. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you bring up Trump about being... Uh, He's so transparent, like with Saudi Arabia, when, um, you know, he was getting flack for the what $110 billion in arms sales. And he was just like, well, what am I supposed to do? These Muslims hate these Muslims. We need to sell them weapons. Oh, it, it's, it's, it's mad. That's how he thinks though. I mean, he, he thinks like a con man. I just want to, I just want to caveat and say that my use of the term bitches for the women that Trump has allegedly raped was inappropriate but the bottom line is i got carried away and i i just think i think he does think that way i appreciate the 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 caveat and i'm sure we that, say uh, we say way more inappropriate stuff on this show don't worry <laughs> we you should have heard what we said about um i got in trouble with from my family when we were talking about george bush and margaret thatcher we speculated <laughs> on some type of an affair but not really <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. let's let's be honest in that relationship margaret thatcher was the alpha let's, let's <laughs> oh absolutely <laughs> for sure um anyway i think you bring up a good point danny i don't think that they can that that any deal can just buy away palestinian statehood or or you know buy away the plight of the palestinians in general um another really big um kind of lynch point for this is like the Palestinian right of return. And so for those folks who are unaware, um, uh, many Palestinians fleed uh, Israel-Palestine uh, during all of the intifadas, uh, millions and millions of them. Uh, I think there was 750,000 were displaced during 1948's war. Uh, and between then, the other intifadas and just population growth there are more than seven million palestinian refugees scattered around the world and funny enough uh when we were at your um debate uh i believe that your your opponent had cleared up to me that evidently i might be a palestinian refugee based on like how they say that that is because my father was palestinian uh is palestinian i should say and uh, their family fled so the um Hamas! Hamas! <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, 
I guess the question you know that that comes up a lot is like, all right, cool. Let's pretend for whatever reason that we can make a new Palestine, right? And you know, somehow they figure out the Swiss cheese thing and that works out. So maybe they link it with some corridors, whatever. And let's say that forty billion dollars over over five years, maybe that's really awesome and good for the econ for the, the the burgeoning new Palestinian economy, right? And super helpful for them and and they're and they're coming up. So what about all the people? who have been waiting generations at this point to come back to their homeland. Will they have that opportunity? This is probably the most um, in, intractable problem of the whole issue. And this right. is where I sound like a moderate. This is where like Palestinian activists would take some exception with me, or at least the more radical ones. I think that it is utterly unrealistic and logistically impossible for 7 million Palestinians or even 2 million Palestinians to be repatriated within the boundaries of Israel and get their land back. It's just been too long. There's been too much population growth and there's too many of them. But in theory, they have international law behind them and they have morality and ethics behind them. What does that mean? Well, I like to describe the right of return as symbolic and similar to American debate, right, Ta-Nehisi Coates, right? Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has been talking about this a lot with American reparations for African-Americans. Mm-hmm. To me, the right of return is an apology from Israel that is backed by something that is maybe symbolic, maybe tens of thousands being allowed to return within to the Israeli borders, although not to their original houses because, you know, three generations worth of Israeli Jews have lived there now. We can't displace right. them either. But I think there has to be some form of reparations in, you know, I think Israel has to say, look, guys, like we can't logistically or ethically allow 7 million of you into our borders and like to swamp the population of a relatively uh, not populous state because it would it would cease to be a Jewish state. Right. Um, But they have to say that our historic wrongs against you are such that not only will it be a symbolic return and an apology, but some form of economic reparations um some palestinians would take a lot of issue with what i just said because they would think they would think they would say that i'm waving away an historic crime and and i am right but i'm also i'm also a realist and i i mean i think it i think israel is gonna have to pull that checkbook out and uh make some concessions in the west bank and gaza to make this right and they're gonna have to give a lot but I don't think it's realistic for Israel to give exactly what the Gazan protesters are calling for. But I don't even think that most Palestinians really think it's possible. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're making a big ask, hoping that the compromise is a, is a middle zone. I think. I think that's what's happening. Also, like for, for a, I guess, a technical Palestinian refugee like me, I don't want to go back. Like, I'm fine here in America. I love America, right? And I'm sure there are plenty of people plenty of Palestinians living abroad that love where they live. So for example, uh, the folks, the the majority of the uh, refugees uh, of um, Palestine live in Jordan, right? Uh, Almost 2 million of them. So 40% of them. And in Jordan, uh, many of them, 95% of them have been given citizenship, right? Uh, They're able to participate in political and economic life. Um, most of them also don't live in like the tents, you know, like the camps, 
uh, that are run in Jordan or in many other places. So they like live normal lives as you know newly Jordanian citizens. So Palestinian like culturally and 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 and, and you know of their heritage, but you know on their passport it says that they are Jordanian citizens and and they're quite quite content with that. But that's not that's not a problem, right? The, the two million people that are living in, in Jordan probably won't have take too much issue with not being able to come back. It's the no, I think, I think you're right. Yep. Elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And specifically in places like, you know, Syria, which is unfortunately its own fucking quagmire, right? And Lebanon specifically, right? So folks living in Lebanon, you know, they're in legit camps, right? Severely restricted by the Lebanese government. For 70 years now. Right. And I mean, they're not granted citizenship. They're considered foreigners. They, they have no political rights. They're denied social rights, like including access to government-run public services like education or healthcare, social security, shit like that. Um, but, you know, and, and the folks that were in Syria before, actually Syria was pretty good with integrating them into their, into their um, society. Like many of them uh, had access to, you know, government services, employment, things like that. But they, they weren't given citizenship but at least they were better off than the folks in Lebanon. But now, <laughs> you know, now there's not even like really a Syria for them to be in, you know? So, uh, and that's, that's, we're talking about millions of people now, right? Millions of people that are living in, in places that do not accept them for who they are and they can't go back to home, to wherever they believe home is. They have no home. They're effectively stateless people. So where do they go? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What do we do with them? Yeah, I, I actually patrolled an area of East Baghdad in 2007 from like February to April 2007 called Bella Diyat, and it's a Palestinian refugee community. I mean, they don't live in tents, but they live in slums in East Baghdad, and um, mm-hmm. they were also relatively stateless. I mean, Saddam had oppressed them, even though they were Sunni and he was Sunni. Like, they were they were just sort of like in between. They you know they didn't fit you know. For sure. And um, Al-Qaeda didn't like them, and the Shia didn't like them because they were Sunni, and Saddam didn't like them because they weren't Iraqi. I mean, I saw this firsthand, and it was really devastating. And, and most of them were refugees of 48, so they've been, at that point, in Iraq for um, 60 years. Right. Right. Still living in the ghetto. Uh, again, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, to here, – here's why I think economic restitution is so important, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compare it again to this whole reparations debate in America. In the United States, the average African-American family has less than one-eighth of the accumulated wealth of the average white family. Now, why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Part of it, though, is a function of federal government housing policy that made it nearly impossible for African-Americans to purchase their own home. So what's the number one way to accumulate 
wealth, right? With assets. Generational wealth mm-hmm. is assets, specifically housing, right? It's, right. it's, it's, it's and, and African-Americans own houses and have owned houses at rates that are a fraction of white Americans. And so household wealth, generational wealth is almost non-existent in the black community in America, even in 2019. So the idea behind reparations is that in order to right some of those wrongs, we're going to try to, we're never going to be able to make up for that eighth or 10th that you are, but we're going to give you some sort of boost that puts you back on a scale or, or on a platform where you can compete right with white America. I think the same can be said of Palestinians because here's what happened. The land and the houses that they left behind when they ran away during the uh, during the uh, initial war of independence or in the 1967 war of Israeli aggression, mm-hmm. they never got they never got the accumulated capital associated with the worth of their land or the worth of their homes. I mean, they were never paid back. And so what you can argue is even if they don't live in refugee camps, even if they live decently well in Jordan, right, or in the West, you know, they still were robbed, right? They were robbed of their accumulated family wealth, which in some cases was generations long, right? Mm-hmm. And so they they started life on an uneven platform, right? It's like, it's like I talk about uh, reparations and I talk about black civil rights, which is actually what my PhD subject is because I'm a masochist and I changed from IRA stuff. Um, <laughs> the reality is like I, I, I describe it as like a game of monopoly. You know, like everyone says like, well, everyone's equal now. We had a black president, right? Everyone's equal now, you know, in Israel, which is clearly untrue. But it's like, what if like the best way to describe it with black and white Americans is like white Americans, they got to roll the dice like 12 times. Like they got they they got to like move around the board and like buy shit up. You know what I mean? Buy up the railroads, like flip around, free visits to prison for like 12 turns. And then we let African-Americans do it. But like by then, most of the good property was bought up, right? And they they, right. they started so far, far behind that we have to level the playing field. I would argue it's the exact same situation between Israeli Jews and Palestinian refugees, even if the Palestinian refugees have been settled in a relatively stable country for up, you know, for decades now. Yeah, I mean, it... it the the problem I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think that that analogy to monopoly makes a whole lot of sense. But my, my where I take I guess where I disagree with you on on the right of return is just it's it's more important to me that you know the folks that are living in in countries that aren't allowing them citizenship or aren't allowing them you know basic human services um, that they have a place to return. And I I understand the the logistical nightmare that it would be to bring 7 million Palestinians to Israel. Israel's a very small place. Even if they were to cram them just into the areas of whatever this new Palestine is that they that they have there, I think completely writing it off and saying there is no right return, you will not return. It, I mean, it, it's, it's morally inept, I think, but it also kind of goes against the like, UN General Assembly like resolutions that have been reaffirmed like since 1949, you know? So, no, so, I, so I actually don't think we, we, we yeah, I want to clarify. We, we don't disagree that much. I, I think one of the real challenges of this is that we're going to have to treat Palestinians unequally, or at least not unequally. We're going to have to treat Palestinians on a case-by-case basis, given their context. And I agree with you that the situation of a relatively affluent Palestinian living in Germany versus a Palestinian who's literally lived in a tent for four generations is going to have to be taken into account. And so mm-hmm not only financially, but also in terms of who gets to actually go back to Israel, we're going to have to take that into account. I don't think every Palestinian is going to be treated equally. I think it's going to be a much more complex process. And 
those people who are in tents in Lebanon and those people who are like being starved in the open air prison of Gaza are probably going to have to get a degree of special treatment. And that may mean that if we do have a hundred thousand symbolically return, you know, we're going to pull those from, and I made that number up, but we're going to pull those from the most desperate Palestinians, because I do agree that it's not just money. It has to be more. Right. Right. And, and, you know, at that point, if we're looking, if we're looking at special treatments for folks that are in particularly dire situations, we're looking at, you know, people in, in the counts of millions, not, you know, not hundreds of thousands anymore. Um, just between Gaza and Lebanon alone, that's like 1.5 million people, you know. And that's where it gets complicated. And so yeah. I don't pretend to have the answer, but I'll tell you for what sure. I do think. I think we should be studying this in a serious way. I think there should be um, binational and international working groups that are that are on this and people that have a lot more information than you and I need to be dealing with this incredibly tra- intractable problem. So instead of denying the right of Palestinians to have anything, people who are super smart have to be studying like, well, how do we make this work? Because there is a moral component and you're right. It's in the millions. And so when I talk about a symbolic right of return, I understand that that's not sufficient. Um, but I'm also aware of the logistics. And so I'm very torn on this issue. Um, I think one of the reasons you guys invited me on is because even though I seem like a radical in America, in America, I, you know, a lot of my positions or a lot of my instincts are, you know, they're pretty moderate on the world scene. And a lot, I mean, not pro Israeli, but definitely sympathetic to Israel. And, you know, it makes me uncomfortable to say that. And I'm so used to being painted with the radical pro Palestinian brush here, but I think what you're, what you're raising, the difference between us that you're raising and neither insults me nor worries me. It actually is extremely important, right? Like, like the little bit of difference between you and I is like the kind of business that some future international and binational Israeli Palestinian tribunal is going to have to work with. And so I, I think it's incredibly important that you brought that up. I'm glad. So uh, we're, we're running a little late here and Henry, I know you've been quiet for the whole time. I want to give you an opportunity to maybe say something if you have anything. No, I was just, I'm just picking your brains. Um, I, I guess my big questions really are, is there a fair country? Is there a country that could actually mediate this? Um, I feel like Jared Kushner, he kind of like fancies himself as like the new Henry Kissinger. If you see his interviews on, on TV, when he's, I saw an interview on Al Jazeera and he, he, it was quite, it was quite telling. It was funny. Um, is there, is there someone who can actually mediate this? Is there, is there a country that could be neutral and mediate a deal? Spain and Norway did a decent job in 92 and 93, but it bothers me to choose a Western country. So, but I also don't trust Saudi Arabia, you know, because they're, they're American lackeys. I don't know what the answer to that is, but I do think it has to be country or series of countries that have no skin in the game. Because if they don't, then it gives them a level of objectivity that neither the United States nor Russia nor Saudi Arabia nor most of the countries in the West have. But I will say that the Scandinavian countries who are fat and happy and like live in the dream in their social democratic, like democratic socialist states that are like super woke, like they're not the worst candidates. But I would like to see an Arab slash Muslim um, component to it just just for the sake of not being the white savior, you know, to, to these problems, which I'm, I'm always, as a guy who, who is working on a PhD, almost done in African-American civil rights, like a white boy, 
like I'm very, very like cognizant and like worried about that. So I don't know what the answer is, but I think you bring up a good point because the international arbiters are going to have to be very carefully selected. Well, if we storm uh, Area 51 and find the aliens, maybe we could uh, maybe we can ask them to do it for us. No, they're not going to touch this issue. It's too too dangerous. <laughs> right? They're they're going to go they're going to go back to their galaxy and be like, yeah. "Fuck it, this it's hard." What do you think about that, by the way, Danny? Not to change the subject too hard, but you know, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm I have like weird I have like a weird relationship with conspiracy theories. Like part of me is like an Occam's Razor guy who's like the simplest answer is always true and the conspiracy is always wrong. But then there's the part of me that like obsessively watches like shows about JFK's murder and like does think that like 9/11 is like maybe not a conspiracy, but definitely like not a full story yet. So, um. I'm I'm a skeptic of conspiracy theories, but I am equally skeptical of any governmental line coming out of Washington. So it would not surprise me <laughs> if there's some shit that the conspiracy theorists said. Like guys in taxi cabs like Mel Gibson and conspiracy theory, like I would not be surprised if they're right about some shit. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll give you one funny story and like we're definitely running short my phone's about to die and like we're way over and that's cool but like this is one of the best conversations I've ever had but like I had I was in Minneapolis at a Veterans of Peace conference this weekend giving a series of speeches and like after the speech was over like there was like catered dinner and I was so goddamn hungry because it was like a long conference and I spoke for almost two hours after the Q&A and all I wanted to do was eat but like people were really impressed with my speech and like really thankful. And they were all like Vietnam era, like gray hairs who were just like happy to see a young guy who agrees with them. And like one person after another was talking to me. And then finally this guy, you ever look at a person and before they even open their mouth, you look in their eyes and you know, they're crazy, you know? Oh yeah. Um, I had that situation. Like there's just something about their dead shark eyes that tells you like, Oh, this is going to go badly. And this guy started telling me about like all his secrets he knew. And he was in the Navy for four years during peacetime. So he knows shit that I can't ever possibly know. And I was like, Oh boy. And then he was like, I'll give you an example, man. He was like, you know, the world is flat. Right. And like, the thing is he was, (laughs) he was dead serious. And he talked to me about a flat world for like four minutes that I'll never get back. Like when I'm on my deathbed, I would be wishing I had those four minutes back. But the point I'm making is like, even that guy, like the world's not flat guys, but like even that guy or his counterpart, like some of them are right. Maybe like, that's my theory on conspiracy theories. Like I'm a skeptic of them, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of these fucking so-called crazies and flakes are actually right about some shit, at least in, at least in a general sense. (laughs) Hey, every every single time Alex jo- Alex Jones will say ten things, nine of them will be crazy. I mean, he's 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 bound to get something right by accident at one point. Half right? of one will be true. <laughs> you know, right. what he Bro- does. broken broken clock twice a day, right? Yeah, exactly. But what happens is that they'll they'll see something like with Alex Jones, he'll see something like Harvard scientists theorize that they could cool climates by putting in trails in, in the sky, and then they'll be like. Well, it's chemtrails are finally coming. It's coming true. Um, that was yeah. a remarkable. That was a remarkably good impression on the fly. We've, yeah. we've had a year oh. to practice. <laughs> I've been working on my Alex Jones for a while, as people as people know. It used to be a lot more in in uh, in tune with the show. Uh, should bring it back though. Yeah, we definitely should. Well, Danny, uh, this has been 
awesome. And I know that we've gone over and I know your phone's going to die. So I just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show and I want to give you a quick opportunity to plug anything that you're working on so that our listeners can, can support you. Yeah. So I love you guys. And this is something I hope to do regularly. Um, listen, I'm on, uh, Twitter at skeptical vet, which describes me pretty well. I write weekly columns at truthdig and antiwar.com, and I write monthly or bi-weekly columns across the range from the nation to the LA Times. Bottom line, I've got a crazy last name, S-J-U-R-S-E-N. Google it. There's a lot of shit online. I've got a lot to say. At least half of it's decent. And uh, thanks, guys, for the opportunity. And no more disclaimer anymore, right? Or do we still need to put that in? No more disclaimer. Right. Um, I, I do speak for me, and I don't give a shit about the U.S. government or the military anymore. So disclaimer's gone. Well, congratulations on that. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, fellas. feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.